Welcome especially to those who are new. Uh, I know we have at least one person here uh, who hasn't been here before, well, actually two people, I think, who have not been here before, and uh, uh, others who are, are coming uh, for only the, the second or third time. So welcome to all of you. Uh, before I begin, I just want to make one brief announcement. Um, I mentioned last time the Oblate Choir uh, that Prior Peter is hoping to form and uh, we'll be sending out more information about that uh, over the next few days here. Um, Nick Reyna has generously agreed to help to coordinate this, um, so the email will be coming in his name, and you can reply to him uh, with any questions you have, and if you're able to participate, let him know. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who once sent the spirit of your Son into the hearts of the apostles, grant that by that same spirit we may discern your will and carry it out with confidence and joy through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, St. Bede, Pray for us. In the year 679 or 680, at a newly founded monastery located near the northeastern coast of present-day England, there took place an oblation ceremony. No contemporary account of this ceremony survives, but from the available evidence we can make a few educated guesses about it. It probably took place in the monastery church, either during mass, as our uh, oblation ceremonies here at the monastery used to take place, or during uh, an independent liturgy in the church. The superior, or one of his delegates, was probably present to witness this oblation, as were members of the oblate's family. And as it still is the case today, this ceremony probably included the signing of a charter of oblation, by which the oblate was understood to be joined to his monastery for life. This was probably connected ceremonially with the monastery's altar. Oblation means offering. And an oblate, an oblatus, is someone who is offered a living sacrifice. So many of these elements, as I was saying, are still present in the ceremony of final oblation and renewal of oblation that some of you participated in last November. Several more will participate in these ceremonies this coming November, God willing. And again, if God wills it, others in the room, perhaps here for the, for the first time, or, or one of the first times, will participate in future years. So all of these details are familiar, or will be at some point in the future. But there's one aspect of this 7th century oblation which is quite different from any other that has happened here, or in any monastery, for several, hundreds year, several hundred years. That aspect lies in the identity of the oblate. He was a future saint and doctor of the church. His name was Beda, 
bead. And in 679 or 680, he was seven years old. Let me quote from some of the concluding words to his ecclesiastical history of the English people and church, which is one of his most famous works. I, Bede, servant of God and priest of the monastery of St. Peter and St. Paul, which is at Wearmouth and Jarrow, was born in the territory of this monastery. When I was seven years of age, I was, by the care of kinsmen, put into the charge of the Reverend Abbot Benedict, that's Benedict Biscop, St. Benedict Biscop, and then of Cholfrid, to be educated. From then on, I have spent all my life in this monastery, applying myself entirely to the study of the scriptures. And amid the observance of the discipline of the rule and the daily task of singing in the church, it has always been my delight to learn or to teach or to write. At the age of 19, I was ordained deacon, and at the age of 30, priest, both times through the administration of the Reverend Bishop John on the direction of Abbot Cholfrin. From the time I became priest until the 59th year of my life, I have made it my business, for my own benefit and that of my brothers, to make brief extracts from the works of the Venerable Fathers on the Holy Scriptures, or to add notes of my own to clarify their sense and interpretation. So today, after a few months of digressions and a conference from Prior Peter last month, we will resume a series that I have entitled How to Read Like Bede, Lexio Divina in the Age of Smartphones. Um, one brief side note here. For those of you who were not present in March for the first conference, I have some photocopies of some of the material that went into that conference. Uh, one, one of the oblates uh, requested this information uh, some weeks back, and so I thought I would make it available to anyone who's interested. There's a brief article here by Father Michael Casey on Lexio Divina for those who are new to this practice, and then two articles by Nicholas Carr, who's the author of the book The Shallows that I uh, quoted from in that first conference. So I'm going to put these over on the table here. So today's conference is the Oblation of Bede and the Conversion of Benedict. As I said several months ago, the conversion of St. Benedict is the foundation of monastic culture in the Western Church. Both in the story of his conversion and in his rule, we find two elements that stand in constant creative tension the love of learning, and the desire for God. That's taken from the title of a, a wonderful book by one of the great writers on the monastic life in the second half of the 20th century, uh, Jean Leclerc, Father Jean Leclerc. I read this 
during my early days in the monastery, and we continue to come back to it. It's one of those texts that you can revisit time and again. The love of learning and the desire for God. These two elements together give rise to medieval monastic culture. Now, as I said again in March, the principal technology of this culture was the book. We don't think of the book as a technology, but it was, and indeed uh, quite a revolutionary technology. More importantly for our purposes today, one of the characteristic spiritual practices of this culture was Lexio Divina. Lexio Divina is the prayerful meditation on the text of the Bible and of other writings that embody the faith of the church. It remains a central practice for Benedictine monastic life today. I was saying to the novices uh, at one of our recent Zoom sessions, many of you have heard of Ora et Labora, I'm sure, as uh, perhaps the motto of, of the Benedictine order. Um, Father Terence Cardong, uh, who recently died, uh, a, a wonderful American writer on uh, Benedictine life and a great scholar, said that's really not accurate. Um, if we were to try to summarize Benedictine life, we would have to say ora labora et lexio, because all three of them are essential. Because it's essential to the monastic life, it is also one of the core practices of the oblate life. Now, before I speak further of the conversion of St. Benedict and these two elements, which stand behind Lexio Divina, I want to say a bit more about the oblation of Bede. I believe that this seven-year-old future saint and doctor has much to teach us. First and foremost, the oblation of Bede is a remarkable lesson in the virtue of acceptance. When I was a novice, Prior Peter assigned a variety of books for spiritual reading in addition to my ongoing coursework in the rule and in monastic history and the Psalms. And one of the first of these was a book that I know some of you have read, um, Learning the Virtues That Lead You to God by Romano Guardini. <laughs> ah, good advertisement for it there, John, thank you. Near the beginning of this book, I read the following sentence. Guardini uh, is saying here, if someone were to question me uh, in the following way, what would I say? What is the presupposition for all moral effort if it is to be effective, if it is to change what is amiss, to strengthen what is feeble? to balance what is uneven. I believe we would have to answer, it is the acceptance of what is, the acceptance of reality, of your own and that of the people around you, and of the time in which you live. Now, I have to admit, my reaction to this was quite strong. <laughs> acceptance? This is a virtue? Now. Look, I've entered a monastery here to fast, to pray, to become holy, to read the Bible, to read the Fathers. And instead, what I get is this 
tired 1970s psychobabble about acceptance. You know, I'm okay, you're okay. Now, that was my inner reactionary, um, and he does come out from time to time. But acceptance is indeed a virtue. And in some ways, it's the foundation of all growth in virtue, as Guardini says, that quite effectively makes that point in a chapter on acceptance. Now, it was a virtue at that time that I lacked, and that explains my reaction. By the way, I did not at all coordinate my conference with Brother Gabriel's homily today, but it really works out perfectly, because this is exactly what he was talking about in his homily. Our reaction to the word of God tells us a great deal about where we need to be converted. The same is true for the doctors of the faith and contemporary teachers, a very great contemporary teacher like Romano Guardini. So it was a virtue that I had yet to acquire at that time, and my reaction to that line showed me this. Now, St. Bede is an exemplar of the virtue of acceptance. Let me read a brief excerpt here that I think brings this out very well. This is a point that is easily overlooked. Bede's religious vocation was not of his own choosing, but it was imposed upon him by the kinsmen who placed him in the monastery at the age of seven. We are apt to think of Bede as a monk by nature, and so he probably was. But the fact remains that his decision was in effect made for him by others when he was still a child. Thus, he is an admirable example of those who choose to abide in the state in which God called him. Now, he shows really nothing but enthusiasm for the monastic life throughout his writings. But this was not his choice. Now, I think all of you can agree that this represents a profound challenge to our modern sensibilities. St. Benedict sets forth his prescriptions for child oblation in chapter 59 of the rule. And we read, all of us who read the rule regularly, here in the monastery, we use the same cycle. We read this three times a year. But how many of us, how many of us really grapple with the profound challenge that this poses? We believe in personal autonomy. I, I think even as Catholics, we would say we believe in individual vocation, you know, an individual response uh, to God's grace, a free response. And this is true. I'm not, I'm not uh, denying the importance of that. It's certainly present in the rule. We see this in the prologue, the importance of a personal response to the voice of God. But... St. Bede shows us acceptance in a profoundly, uh, perhaps we might say, unmodern or pre-modern way. Um, and yet it has much to teach us because it's, it's a beautiful virtue manifest throughout his writings. His acceptance and his patient attentiveness to the providence of God at work in the whole of human history, not just in, in sacred history recounted in the Bible, in nature, Bede wrote a number of scientific works that he intended 
to serve as companions to his biblical commentaries and to, to train others in the necessary scientific knowledge for uh, understanding sacred doctrine, understanding the scriptures. All of this is animated by this lively faith, this lively acceptance of God's providence. His writings breathe with the, the peace of the cloister, the contemplative leisure of the cloister. And yet, the fact remains that Bede lived during a time of escalating crises in the world and in the church. These crises culminated during the decades following his death in the total destruction of Anglo-Saxon monasticism. He saw these crises looming on the horizon, and in his last published work, which was the letter to a bishop by the name of Egbert, who is a former student of his from the monastery, he sounded what amounts to a clarion call about Episcopal negligence, clerical avarice, uh, laxity of observance in monasteries in the kingdom. Uh, in his view, the golden age that had preceded him following the conversion of the Anglo-Saxon peoples was really coming to an end. And he tried, perhaps belatedly, to draw attention to this. But yet, despite the lack of agency that he had in his own vocation, despite the crises that were looming uh, all around him, Bede is a man of profound acceptance, of peace, of attentiveness to the ways of God in all things. And I think it is for this reason that he has much to teach us today. Now, before I move on to the conversion of uh, St. Benedict and these two elements of the love of learning and desire for God, which are present throughout Bede's own work and the whole of medieval monastic culture. Um, I just want briefly to mention that we shouldn't lose sight of how foreign this world is to us. Even though I think there's a great deal about St. Bede and his life that is relevant for us today, this was a profoundly different world. Now, the early Anglo-Saxons are the remote ancestors of us, either ethnically, in the case of some of us, or linguistically, in the case of all who speak English. But their culture was almost unimaginably different from ours. Uh, this is the world that recorded and passed down to posterity the great epic poem Beowulf, which many of you probably struggled through when you were in uh, 
junior high or high school. Um, now, Beowulf is set several centuries before Bede's life, but it was his culture that preserved it, uh, and his, his successors who actually wrote it down for the first time. So they recognized themselves in this, even if it was uh, a past version of themselves. It was their ancestors who were recognizably uh, part of their own world. This was an agrarian society, a tribal society of warrior chieftains and thanes and aldermen, of pillaging and of blood feuding, of bards and mead halls and gods and monsters. A society that only uh, recently uh, had been formed through the immigration of various Germanic tribes to the British Isles. Beowulf is actually set in Denmark, um, in the north of Europe, and various Germanic peoples, uh, for, for reasons that I won't go into now and that I, I don't fully understand myself, immigrated to the British Isles, and they together formed the Anglo-Saxon people. Only recently had this pagan people received the word of the gospel through the mission of St. Augustine of Canterbury uh, and his companions, whom Pope St. Leo the Great sent in 597. So Bede, Bede's life is from 672 or 3 uh, to 734. St. Augustine and his companions arrive in uh, the British Isles in 597. In one of his last and greatest works, I mentioned the ecclesiastical history, St. Bede tells the story of the origins of the English nation and church. And this is really the work with which his name is most associated today. Many call him you know, the, the first great historian, uh, first sort of scientific historian. And he has remarkable uh, gifts as a, as a historian. I hope we'll have the chance to explore this a bit towards the end of this series, but uh, in previous centuries, Bede was not known so much as a historian, but more as a biblical commentator and of a teacher of all the disciplines necessary to understand and interpret the Bible. Uh, he's been called the teacher of the whole Middle Ages. So he's an essential figure in the development of this medieval monastic culture whose foundation lies in the conversion of St. Benedict. So, I mentioned two elements. The love of learning the desire for God. Jean Leclerc says in his book that these two elements can seem opposed to one another. And we'll get into why that is the case or why that might be the case. Um, but throughout Benedict's life and then in the lives of all of the monks of the medieval period, the life of St. Bede, there's a reconciliation that takes place between the love of learning and the desire for God. 
And so these elements are constants throughout the history of uh, monasticism in the West uh, that really guarantee uh, the continuity uh, of something that's recognizably called monastic culture. Another way to talk about the love of learning is grammar. Uh, medieval monastic writings are written, obviously, uh, rather than oral teaching. Now, this is significant because in the early church, uh, in, say, the 4th century and 5th century, much of monastic teaching was oral. The only reason that we have the sayings of the Desert Fathers is that their successors realized that they were going to be forgotten. These sayings, these great uh, witnesses, um, were going to be forgotten if they weren't committed to, uh, to writing. But this culture, at, its, at the time of its flourishing, was really oral in nature, passed on from master to disciple. But medieval monastic culture is, is literary. It's written, and it's well-written, in conformity with the art of writing. This is called grammatica, uh, which is borrowed from, from the Greek and, and becomes a loanword in Latin. That's the first element. The other element is what we might call, so the, the desire for God. We might call this the mystical orientation of monastic writings. There's a mystical orientation that emerges from this desire for personal union with the Lord, not just in, in beatitude, not just in heaven, but now, in this life. And medieval monastic texts are marked by this intense longing for uh, ultimate consolation, consummation. Meditation on heaven is one of the great themes of medieval monastic literature. And it's something that I, I think we, we don't often recognize the value of, um, to long for heaven, to desire, to see that as our homeland, that we are citizens of another country, uh, citizens of the kingdom of God, and that uh, we should long to be there, should long for the day when we may come to enjoy uh, the the marriage feast of the Lamb. The medieval monastic tradition is founded on two texts which make it Benedictine. I also said this a few months ago. It's Benedictine in the broad sense. This includes Cistercians and Carthusians, Camaldolese, a whole range of, of different reforms, later reforms, um, that also made use of the rule of St. Benedict. So the two texts are, of course, uh, the Life of Benedict, which is book two of the Dialogues of St. Gregory the Great, and the rule itself. Um, now we looked at this briefly, uh, maybe two months ago. Um, I'd like to look at it again, briefly, but a different passage from the one that we looked at uh, back in April or May.
the conversion of St. Benedict was often invoked by monastic tradition, and it has become something of a symbol of St. Benedict. I would say that recently his conversion has again gained a, a cultural currency through uh, Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option. And I think regardless of what one, one's uh, view of that book might be, and there, there are various opinions on, on it and, and its value, the fact remains that he's done a service to us by bringing this before our eyes again as a vital reality. So the young Saint Benedict left Rome and school to go and lead a life in solitude that was entirely consecrated to God. Now, when he was in Rome, what did he study? Let's look here at the second paragraph uh, on the left-hand side there. Born of free parents in the region of Nursia, he was sent to Rome for a liberal education. Now, if you see over in the Latin here, uh, that is um, liberalibus literarum studiis. What are the liberalia studia? Well, they are subjects taught to uh, the, liber the, uh, the libertus, the, the free man. So this is someone who has means, um, who has a, a certain standing uh, in virtue of um, uh, heredity. Um, and for young Romans of the fifth century, this would mean grammar, rhetoric, and law. Now, Jean Leclerc poses the question, well, did he get as far as law before he left school? We're not sure. But we do know that he is still a child, because later, this is a passage subsequent to the one I've excerpted for you here, uh, St. Gregory the Great calls him a puer. That's uh, a boy. Now, in, in Roman culture, that extended beyond what we understand to be boyhood now. Uh, but because he, he's still called a puer even after this episode, uh, and because this, this passage says that he's barely taken a step in the world here. Again, second paragraph. He withdrew his foot that he had just placed on the threshold of the world. This is a symbolic statement of, of uh, the fact that he has not gone through the sort of rite of passage into manhood, into public status, you know, as a... Uh, as a Roman nobleman. So it's not likely that he got all the way to law. This took place over a period of years. But he probably studied at least grammar. So why did he give up his studies? We talked about this a couple of months ago. When he saw that some of his classmates were plunging into vice, he withdrew his foot. So he's, he's disgusted with what he sees and hears around him. And as we all, or some of us certainly, many of us know from, from our experience in, in school, say in college, um, student life is full of, of dangers of various kinds to a life of virtue. And once he departs, uh, he subordinates 
everything to the search for God. Abandoning his literary studies and leaving his home, his family home and inheritance, he sought to please God alone. We see in germ here the two components of monastic culture. On the one hand, grammar, studies undertaken, and then on the other hand, the desire for God. These studies are not so much scorned, it's not as though he's rejecting the studies in themselves, but he's renounced them freely and transcended them for the sake of the kingdom of God. And all subsequent Benedictine tradition is to be made in this image of St. Benedict's life. This is Jean Leclerc. Scienter nescius et sapienter inductus. You'll see that's the last phrase in the Latin side there of the paragraph. Recessit igitur scienter nescius et sapienter inductus. Thus he left Rome learnedly ignorant and wisely uninstructed. It's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful paradox there, isn't it? Wonderful paradox. What Leclerc is saying here is that it is the distinctive vocation of Benedictines to embrace this teaching of learned ignorance and to keep it alive as an inevitable paradox. This is always going to be a paradox in the eyes of the world. On the one hand, yes, we take up studies, but on the other hand, we also renounce them and we transcend them for the sake of the kingdom of God. We see these same two elements in the rule of St. Benedict. And this will take me through the end of my, my conference today. I'm going to examine in some detail a few passages from the rule. Now, the fact is that the rule presupposes learned monks. I see some of you have your copies of the rule with you, so we can look, look up the passages together. Um, now, St. Benedict makes little provision for intellectual work because he takes it for granted. Now, this stands in contrast to the fact that he regulates manual work according to what is allowed by the daily schedule, by the orarium. You're familiar with chapter 48, which is called On the Daily Manual Labor. And he very clearly says when the monks are supposed to work. Now, why is it that he would mention work and, and not the pursuits of the mind? We could answer that question in various ways, but one way to answer it is, is this. He wants to put work in its proper place and confine it to that alone because work is not an end in itself. Work is a means to an end. Work is a means to leisure. We work in order to have leisure time, sacred leisure in the monastery, contemplative peace. Uh, prayer always has a priority. Lexio Divina always has a priority. It's very hard to remember that and to practice that in today's culture, very hard. We have it precisely the opposite today. We, we rest in order to go back to work. 
The love of learning and the desire for God are united in one of the principal pursuits of the monk, which is Lexio Divina. Remember, ora, labora, et lexio. That's Benedictine life. Now, to engage in this essential practice, this may seem obvious, but it is necessary, one, to possess books, two, to know how to write them and to read them, and three, if necessary, to learn how to read them. Now, we know that St. Benedict takes for granted the existence of a library. Look at chapter 48 here. I talked about this back in March, and my own response to this when I was discerning monastic life, this made a great impression on me. During this time of Lent, each one is to receive a book from the library and is to read the whole of it straight through. Now, this library must be fairly extensive because each monk is supposed to receive his own book. So if you have several dozen monks, you need to have a fair number of books. Sometimes in Bede's monastery, you know, there were, there were uh, hundreds of monks, so you would need to have a large library. Chapter 73 suggests that those who are advancing in the way of perfection read the scriptures, the conferences and institutes of, of St. John Cashin, the lives of the fathers, the rule of St. Basil. These need to be in the library if St. Benedict's exhortation here is going to be followed. But nowhere does he say the monastery is to have a library, and here's what is to be in that library. You know, here's appoint a librarian. You know, he doesn't make it explicit. Chapter 38, and you can look these up if you like. Um, monks should be able to read in the refectory and inquire. Chapter 53, monks should be able to read the divine law to guests. And in both these cases, he says that the goal is edification. So this requires not just literacy, but the capacity to communicate meaning without drawing undue attention to oneself. It's possible to communicate meaning in, in a sort of, uh, theatrical way, and that obviously is not the goal here. So the second point, in order to possess the books, it becomes necessary that someone know how to write them, because this is how books were acquired during the medieval period. They would have been loaned out uh, and then copied. And sometimes there, there were books exchanged. You know, one monastery would have a copy of this book uh, that the other monastery didn't have, and so they would trade one back that, that was not in that library, and they would copy them each of them, and then give them back. So all are supposed to possess the skill of writing. And in chapters 32 and 35, the abbot and the seller are to keep accounts and lists. In chapters 32 and 58, there are written documents spoken of in the archives of the monastery. Chapters 33 and 54, I'm skimming over this pretty quickly here, uh, there is to be no exchanging of letters 
between monks or possession of writing materials without the abbot's permission. So it's clear that St. Benedict presumes that his monks can write. However, he does not assume that all of them are literate when they enter the monastery. In chapter 48, if we look at that again, when he talks about the, the, the difference between Sunday and weekdays, verse 22, on Sunday all are to be engaged in reading except those who have been assigned various duties. If anyone is so remiss and indolent that he is unwilling or unable to study or read, he is to be given some work in order that he may not be idle. So obviously reading is much better in his view than working, on, uh, particularly on Sundays. But there will, there will be some who are unable to do it in his very realistic assessment. So this likely implies that there were illiterate monks who were entering. Uh, we can see this also in several other chapters, uh, including the chapters 58 and 59 on the reception of newcomers and the reception of child oblates. Obviously a child, uh, St. Bede's age. Would a seven-year-old in that time be able to write? I'm, I'm not sure. but. Um, Certainly there were younger children given to the cloister who would not have been able to write. So what this means is that there must be a monastery school of some kind. And there must be books for the school. Jean Leclerc has speculated and others have speculated that these, these monastic School libraries must have contained at least the scriptures, the fathers, some elementary works on grammar, and possibly a few classical authors. So, let's move then from these elements which indicate that St. Benedict presupposes grammar, presupposes monks who have some facility with writing and reading, and makes provisions, or at least understands there will be provisions made for those uh, who are illiterate to receive that kind of instruction. Let's move from there to uh, an examination of what he means by lexio and meditatio. In order to understand the meaning and the method of lexio divina in the rule, we must understand these two words uh, very carefully. Legere and meditari in the Latin. Legere is the verb for lexio, meditari is the verb for meditatio. The meaning they have for Saint Benedict they keep throughout the whole of the Middle Ages, including in Saint Bede. And this meaning helps to explain one of the most remarkable features of medieval monastic literature, and that is the feature, the phenomenon of reminiscence. They have incredible memories. And they're constantly recalling the same word 
the word, say, in the passage they're, they're reading and commenting upon, the same word in another passage. And all of the different examples of that word throughout the scriptures. This is most dazzling in, say, for instance, St. Bernard, who is like, he, he, it's astounding. He, he is a font of scriptural language. Absolutely everything he says, everything he writes is marked by reminiscences of the, of the scriptures. Um, and this is really, this lexio is inseparable from what has been called the art of memory in the, in the medieval period. There, there were whole treatises that were written on how to remember well. Um, again, this is something we've almost entirely lost uh, under the influence of, of certain pedagogical theories which uh, regard uh, memorization as, as sort of rote and dull and, and, and pretty worthless and um, in some ways inhibiting to uh, you know, the creativity of, uh, of, of children. Um, and uh, rather than, than uh, lapsing into my inner reaction, I, I will refrain from comment on that, on, on that particular theory, but I think what you see in, the, in, in uh, the examples of medieval monastic uh, reminiscence, um, you see how incredibly creative, how incredibly fruitful uh, a well-cultivated memory enables one to be. In the Middle Ages, as in the ancient world, readers usually read not principally with their eyes, but with their lips, pronouncing what they saw, and with their ears, listening to the words that they pronounced. Now, there was a technological reason for this. We said that the book is the great technology of monastic culture. The scribes of St. Bede's generation created for the first time texts without excuse me, texts with spaces between the words. Prior to that, words did not have spaces between them, if you can imagine that. Uh, not only that, but there were no word breaks between lines. So, you know, you'll see this <coughs> continuous sort of flow of letters, and then halfway uh, through a word, you know, the text will drop down to the next line with no indication that there's been a break at all. They're difficult to read. It takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of preparation, to read these texts. That's why St. Benedict insists on, you know, uh, memorizing the Psalms and the, the readings between vigils and lots. He talks about this, I think, in chapter, chapter nine, if I'm not mistaken, of the rule. Um, just very briefly here. I'm sorry, chapter eight. In the time remaining after vigils, those who need to learn some of the Psalter or reading should study them. Why do they need to learn them? Well, first of all, because they're praying the office largely by heart. Second of all, because it's not easy to read these books. <laughs> uh, it takes a lot of effort, a lot of time. So the, the table reader would have had to do a lot of preparation before he was unleashed upon the brothers uh, you know, at their at their meal. So this, uh, this, this practice, um, so by, by, during the time of St. Benedict, 
this innovation hasn't taken place yet. It's later. So St. Benedict is 480 to 547. St. Bede is 672, 673 to 5, uh, 534. 834, excuse me. 734. 672 to 734. Um, so this, there's a lapse of, of 100, 150 years between their, their lives. In that time, there's this innovation, creating spaces between words. But during St. Benedict's time, readers read audibly. Uh, they read and they heard what was called the voice of the pages. And reading, really, legere means listening. Uh, not just reading, but listening to what one is reading. Now, silent reading was not unknown. Uh, and in fact, uh, in the Confessions, there's a famous story that uh, St. Uh, Augustine tells of encountering St. Ambrose reading silently. He was shocked by this because he hadn't encountered it before. Um, uh, St. Benedict also says that the monks should rest on their beds after the meal uh, and those who wish to read should read to themselves so this is very quiet audible reading to oneself but usually most usually in the rule legere and lexia refer to an activity which like chanting and writing requires the participation of the whole body and the whole mind. Ancient doctors actually recommended reading to patients as physical exercise, if you can imagine that, <laughs> on par with running, walking, or ball playing. We think of it as the opposite of physical exercise. When Peter the Venerable, who was one of the holy abbots of Cluny, we celebrated them, uh, their feast day, uh, a couple of months ago, when he was suffering from an illness, uh, he writes, he was no longer able to speak in public or to do lexio. So the, he didn't have enough energy to do his lexio because lexio was reading aloud. So it's necessarily an active reading with the movement of the eyes accompanied spontaneously by the movement of the lips. I would just suggest, as a brief digression, that this can still be a fruitful practice for us in Lexio today, especially when we are beginners to the practice or if we are struggling with distraction or drowsiness. This is a great aid to staying awake. Um, not only to verbalize it, but actually to perform it in character, if you can. Not in a, a sort of theatrical way, but to seek to give faithful expression to the author's distinctive voice. Every author of scripture has his own voice. You know, Kohelet, the author of Ecclesiastes, sounds very different from St. Paul. Can you hear in your mind what Kohelet would have sounded like? When I was a novice, Father Pryor had me do Lexio on Proverbs, um, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, which is traditionally understood to be uh, a a journey progressing through the various stages of the spiritual life, arriving at contemplation in the Song of Songs, interpreted spiritually. Um, I was having difficulty reading Ecclesiastes, and in spiritual direction, um, he, he just demonstrated what it would sound like you know, if Kohelet were in the room speaking uh, and you know he, he, he loves Ecclesiastes. I think he did a, a paper on it when he was doing his graduate study. And um, he, 
uh, he gave a very convincing performance of what, what you know, Kohelet would have sounded like. I would suggest that might be a fruitful practice to consider in, in, in Lexio, um, to get a sense for the fact that you are being addressed by this. When you vocalize it and you hear the vocalization, can you hear the voice of this author and, and through him the Holy Spirit speaking? So that's legere and lexio. Now, what about meditari and meditatio? Well, they're closely linked. But meditari and meditatio have a number of additional rich meanings that are drawn both from sacred usage in the Bible, but also from ancient secular usage. And when I first read this, it, it really made a great impression on me. Now, in secular usage, meditari means to think or to reflect. But more than this, it implies to think of a thing with the intent to do it. In other words, Jean Leclerc says, to prepare oneself for it, to prefigure it in the mind, to desire it, even as it were to do it in advance by imagination. Another way to put this is it means to practice it. Like in the sense that, that, so in ancient usage, this is also applied to sports. We meditari in our, you know, athletic exercises, um, engage in, in, in meditatio. In military life, in the school, poetry, music, and even moral practices, all of those things, we can practice them. Meditation has all of these sense in, this, in the ancient secular usage. To practice a thing by thinking of it is to fix it in the memory to learn it, as it were. And just going back briefly to uh, The Shallows, the book by Nicholas Carr that I mentioned uh, in the first conference in this series, he shows that, that recent research in neurology can actually demonstrate the material effects of these practices in the mind. That, so the mind has its material manifestation in the brain. And when the mind is meditating in this way, practicing something, preparing for it in advance, prefiguring it, it actually changes the circuitry of the brain, as it were. And so I think I mentioned uh, in that conference, um, you know, practicing a piano piece for a half an hour, five days over the course of a week is the same thing as imagining yourself practicing it, you know, for, for half an hour, five times during the course of a week. And it actually changes the brain, you know, to do that. That's remarkable. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a confirmation of this very ancient insight. So all of these meanings are present in the Christian use of this term, but they're generally applied to a person's approach to a text, and especially to the Bible. Now, the word meditation enters the English language through the Latin translation of the Bible, which is the Vulgate, as some of you may be familiar with that. And meditatio, or meditari, here translates a Hebrew word, hagah, which means, literally, to learn the Torah while pronouncing the words in a low tone, by reciting the words to oneself. We might even say murmuring the words with the mouth. Now, we think of this as maybe learning by heart, but for the ancients, it was literally learning by the mouth. We were learning by the mouth. 
Uh, in Psalm 36, 37, the just man's mouth utters wisdom. This is meditari here. It literally means he mutters, he, he, he murmurs wisdom to himself. Psalm 1, uh, the just man uh, pictured here who ponders God's law day and night. Again, ponders in this case is that same word. He's murmuring the law of God, fixing it in his mind uh, with the intention of practicing it. Interesting contrast that in Psalm 2, uh, there's also a murmuring that goes on, but it's, it's a useless murmuring. It's uh, why do the nations uh, rage? I'm not sure if that's our translation here. Uh, why among peoples this useless murmuring? They're meditating not the law of God, but, the, but vain things. How many of us do that? <laughs> I, I think we have to confess, uh, you know, honestly, that much of the time uh, we're, we're murmuring muttering, pondering, meditating, vain things rather than uh, the ways of God. So to speak, to think, and to remember, these are the three necessary phases of the same activity, legere and meditare together. So here's Jean Leclerc's summary. For the ancients, to meditate is to read a text and to learn it by heart in the fullest sense of the expression, with one's whole being, with the body, since the mouth pronounced it, with the memory, which fixes it, with the intelligence, which understands its meaning, and with the will, which desires to put it into expression. For medieval monks, the foremost aid to good works, to a life of virtue, is a text which makes possible the meditated reading of the Word of God. And there is no Benedictine life without literature. So I'm running out of time here. Um, I'm going to skip over uh, Leclerc's discussion of monastic schools um, and how instruction was, was carried out. It's important to remember that in the rule of St. Benedict, the monastery is exclusively a monastery. It must have possessed a school, but the school is never spoken of and in no way modifies the monastic ideal. So the education that did take place was never separated from spiritual effort. Uh, a monastic school, like the whole monastery, as St. Benedict says in the prologue, is a school for the service of the Lord. The reason for this is that monastic life has only one purpose. Just as St. Benedict, in, in his conversion, his departure from Rome, had only one purpose in mind, and that is the search for God, to please God alone. I'll sum up once more here. The two elements that we saw in the conversion of St. Benedict and now in his rule become the two constants of all subsequent monastic culture. On the one hand, the study of letters. On the other, the exclusive search for God and the love of eternal life and the consequent detachment from everything else, including the study of letters. So there's a tension between these elements and whenever monastic values retain their vitality, 
um, that tension exists. Um, so to the extent that we, that we can work out a reconciliation, it must be continually rediscovered, reinvented, rejuvenated in a living and spontaneous manner for each period, for each monastery, and perhaps even for each monk. And we could go on to say for each oblate as well. The reconciliation between these two elements. So for the remainder of this year, we will look at how one of the greatest of the Benedictine saints, the one whom St. John Henry Newman called the pattern of a Benedictine, synthesized these two elements in his own life and work and what it can teach us about Lexio Divina. So we have a few minutes before I need to head upstairs. Does anyone have any questions? Yes. In, in chapter 17, um, Holy Father Benedict says that the monks of his day would read the entire Psalter in one day. Mm. Is, that, mm. is that a slight exaggeration or is that a no. setting the bar high for us? Um, well, I think it is certainly setting the bar high, but it's no exaggeration. We see this in certainly the early monastic literature that monks would pray the Psalter continually throughout the course of the day. Uh, as they worked, and for that reason, uh, uh, it was um, it was an essential uh, practice for uh, for early monasticism. Um, it it probably by Benedict's time, uh, he already recognizes there's been a, a sort of cooling of the fervor and a um, a falling off from what he regards as the golden age. Uh, in the early period of monasticism. And so he says, let us at least do it in, within a week. You know, um, We can't do it in a day like our fathers did. We're not our fathers. Um, we're, we're not as virtuous as they were. We're not as holy as they were. Um, so I would say, I mean, one other way to answer that question is that this was, this was a goal that was preserved you know, down through the centuries. And um, uh, it was never forgotten, you know, this early... Uh, witness of uh, the great monks of the desert. And so, for instance, at uh, Cluny um, in the, the 9th century, 10th century, 11th century, um, this was practiced again, but in a different way, in actually a liturgical setting. They, in some cases, would, would pray the entire Psalter in the office during the course of one day. It's hard to imagine. But they, they really could do very little else for that reason. You know. um, and the Cistercian reforms uh, reacted to that in part, this sort of liturgical hypertrophy. You know, the liturgy had sort of grown so massive and, and elaborate that it uh, crowded out time for lexio, crowded out time for solitude, silence. So we had to reestablish a balance between the different elements. It's a long answer to your question. Any other questions? Well, Thank you, and um, you're, you're certainly welcome to, to join us up at the office if uh, you're able. Um, otherwise, uh, we will be in touch uh, over the coming weeks by email. So let's conclude with uh, a prayer to Our Lady. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, 
Our Lady, Queen of Monks, pray for us. Our Lady, Queen of Oblates, pray for us. 